Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. After the fall of Singapore in February 1942, the focus of the Pacific War moved closer to Australia. Japanese forces bombed Darwin and began to launch attacks on Papua New Guinea with a view to capturing the vital port Moresby. If the Japanese had captured that port, it would have enabled them to bomb Allied bases, vital bases, in northern Australia. I'm your host, James Rogers. This is the Warfare Podcast, and what you hear next is the ferocious, desperate, and vicious seven-month campaign that followed as the Japanese made their way up the narrow Kokoda Trail and fought an allied Australian and local force that was outnumbered three to one. To take us through this remarkable history, we have David W. Cameron on the podcast, an Australian author based in Canberra who has written a new book, The Battles for Kokoda Plateau, And he's not to be confused with the former British Prime Minister, David Cameron, of course. But it's thanks to our fantastic regular listener to the Warfare podcast, Rebecca Hunter, that we have David on the pod. Rebecca emailed us on warfare at historyhit.com and recommended both David and this topic. So this is exactly what we want here on the podcast. We want to hear the topics that you want to learn more about. So do the same. Reach out to us on warfare at historyhit.com or directly on Instagram, straight to me, at James Rogers History. So a big thanks to Rebecca, but here now is David W. Cameron on the Kokoda Trail. Enjoy. Hi, David. Welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing? Thanks, James. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Where are you in the world? Canberra, Australia. Well, that is the perfect place to be talking about this slice of Second World War history. It's always good to focus in on some of the Australian campaigns and, in this case, not to be too much of a spoiler, but uh, I suppose you could say an Australian victory. Yeah, it was um, one of the first big physical land forces in the Japanese. The first was at Milne Bay by the Australians and Kokoda was happening at the same time. Oh, wow. Well, let's get into this then, because if we try and frame this in a broader kind of strategic context, and I suppose we could say this needs to be viewed as a natural kind of next step after the fall of Singapore, Britain's largest ever defeat, you could argue. And so the Japanese are moving down and heading towards Australia and the Kokoda Trail. Kokoda is the next logical step. It is Port Moresby. They wanted Port Moresby, the Solomons, Fiji, and New Caledonia. They never wanted to invade Australia. They couldn't do that. They just didn't have the personnel to do it. 
the landmasses flogged them like Germany and Russia. So uh, the Japanese just sort of got lost. But uh, they didn't want to isolate Australia and New Zealand from America. And so what they wanted to do was capture Port Moresby and basically extend the line from Port Moresby all the way to Fiji and New Caledonia. And that was going to be their end point. And that was basically a buffer to stop Allied air forces bombing their resources in, in mainland Asia, as well as to stop any potential invasion of, say, Singapore, Philippines. By having that buffer zone, that was insurance policy of maintaining the Japanese empire at that point. And that was their final defence line. Right, I see, because this is pretty astute by the Japanese as well. They know that if the Allies start to get airfields within bombing ranges of Japan, or you know, even within a few thousand kilometres, then they can start to push forwards. They can get the closer islands towards mainland Japan, and then you can move in that heavy bombing campaign against Japanese cities, Japanese industry, and Japanese military targets. So this is all about trying to create an exclusion zone as far as possible away from the Japanese mainland. Definitely. That was the ultimate goal. And that's why Port Moresby was important. Port Moresby was one end of the line and Fiji was at the other end and New Caledonia and the Solomons in between. And so arguably, the fact they weren't able to do this, they weren't able to secure these islands, means that, well, it's one of the reasons why they ended up losing the war and having to completely and unconditionally surrender. It is. The Battle of Midway was important so in many ways, not just because of the destruction of a major Japanese task force in terms of their carriers, but it also stopped them from being able to establish that line. Um, before Midway, they planned to invade New Caledonia and Fiji to extend this huge line as a buffer. But before Midway, they realised they couldn't invade Fiji and they couldn't invade New Caledonia. So this was their last gamble, putting some type of buffer between Japan ultimately and the Allies based Australia and New Guinea. But of course, what I'm talking about here as well is all said with uh, a bit of 2020 hindsight and perfect vision. Because at this point in time, in 42, the Japanese are steamrolling through. They're certainly on a roll. And Kokoda is part of this. How many troops do we see starting to push through into Papua New Guinea? They originally landed on the 21st of July with about 4,000 troops. They were there to, to secure an airfield. Um, ultimately, that had 13,000 troops at Buna, Gona and Sananda. Those troops ultimately were something to invade Port Moresby. They invaded Kokoda, which had an airfield, which they didn't end up using anyway. But they invaded Kokoda, which is just on the northern slopes of the Owen Stanley Mountains, with 2,500 troops. Um, they were to do a reconnaissance, get up to Usarava, find out whether it was feasible to go along the Kokoda track. So they uh, went up into the mountains and realised it was feasible to do a, an infantry attack, but it was going to be basically one battalion behind another because it was a very difficult to walk along. So uh, they ended up with two regiments, which is basically um, the 41st Regiment, which had four battalions, and the 144th Regiment, three battalions. The Australians initially had one company, 100 men, along with some Papuan troops of the 1st Papuan Infantry Battalion, about 20 or 30 of those. So say so, so roughly 130 men were fighting 500 Japanese at one point, trying to stop them from advancing into the highlands. They fought two battles to try and save the airfield Kokoda. They ended up losing that. And then on the 13th of August, that's when the mountain campaign started. And that's when the rest of the Japanese force moved up the mountains. The next major battle that happened about Daniki was on the 13th of August. The Japanese invaded on 21st of July. Kokoda fell around about the 10th of August. Daniki fell on the 13th of August, which is the first battle up in the highlands of the Owen Stanley Rangers. You've got about 70 Australians fighting there. The rest of the battalion moved up, so you had about 300 men. They all fall back to what became one of the major battles of the Kokoda campaign. That's called Usarava. The Japanese invaded, uh, attacked Usarava on the 26th with um, 1,500 troops, and the militia, Australian militia, had uh, 300 men. 
And it's basically a movie. The cavalry arrived just in time. That very afternoon, the Australians of the 14th, 2nd 14th Battalion had fought in the Middle East. Great distinction had been pushed up the track. So just as the Japanese launched their 1,500 men against 250, 300 Australians, reinforcements of 300 men from the second AIF arrived that very afternoon, just as the Japanese started to surround and, and isolate the Australians in Sarava. Then another Australian battalion came up behind them. Two or three hours later, those men just would have been massacred. So they arrived just in the nick of time. but We're talking hours, yep. But what sort of numbers are we talking about here? Are we starting to reach a parity or are the Australians still massively outnumbered? The Australians, basically, when the 214th Battalion arrived to help the 39th Battalion, there probably would have been about 500 Australians facing 1,500 Japanese. And then there was another battalion arrived the next day. So you had another, so you had, then you had 800 Australians, 900 Australians facing 1,500, 2,000 Japanese. But the Japanese were on the offensive and they were doing flanking maneuvers. The Australians were trying to cover three tracks. It's a main Dakota track, but there was a track running east and west of that. They didn't know where the Japanese were going to attack. The Japanese were, were attacking along. There was the main attack coming down the main Kokoda track in centre, and east and west of that, there was the Japanese battalions moving down those. So the Australians had to try and cover the main track in Sarava, as well as sending out patrols east and west of the main track to try and locate the Japanese. So the Japanese had everything on their side. They could launch an offensive wherever they wanted to. Both of the Japanese were um, attacking Sarava, while others were being around the flanks. The Japanese were master at encirclement. And they were trying to come up behind the Australians in Uslava. Um, there's two major battles going on around about the 20th of August, 15,000 Japanese against about 800 Australians. And from then on, it was a fighting withdrawal for about a month. And by the time another brigade came up, a place called Butcher's Hill, Australian Japanese massacred each other. Um, the Australians kept falling back. A whole battalion, the 227, got lost in the jungle. The 16th Battalion and the 214th Battalion that fought at Usarava, they were falling back trying to get the wounded out of um, Mission Ridge. The 278th Battalion stayed behind to allow these men to withdraw, and the Japanese cut them off. So basically you had a whole battalion of about 500 men lost in the jungles. Many were never seen again. They had about 400 men lost in the jungles. Those that survived finally made their way back to Australian lights about a month after that. By the time the Japanese got towards Port Moresby, the brigade of 1,500 men was down to 300 men. And just then, as the Japanese were at that point, two more Australian brigades arrived at Port Moresby. And the Australians were able to finally launch an operation against Japanese and build up their supplies. The Australians were at the very start of their supply base. The Japanese were well behind the supply base. So the Japanese were set in spectrum supplies. Okay, let's pause there and take stock of this situation because a lot has happened in this battle for the Kokoda Trail at this point. It sounds like the Japanese have just been pushing through at quite the pace against an inferior in terms of power, in terms of the number of troops, an Australian force that really is on its last legs and being pushed back towards the coast. So everything is in Japan's favour here. But like you mentioned, they've perhaps separated themselves a little bit too much from the teeth of their attack and the tail of their logistics and supply line. So does this start to affect the Japanese? Do they start to run out of munitions, out of food, out of clean water? Is that something that starts to affect their ability to fight? That's exactly, you've hit the nail on the head. As the Australians withdrew, they got closer to their supply lines. As the Japanese advanced, they got further from theirs. And on a Kokoda track, you've got one track that's some um, one metre wide. So you're trying to supply basically two Japanese regiments, which would be two brigades. You can't do that unless you've got aircraft. The saving grace for the Australians was not only that we were falling back to our own supply bases, we got closer to our supply bases, they got further from theirs, 
we had aircraft. The Japanese were not dropping supplies to their men. When we started our advance, and even when we were withdrawing, Australian aircraft and American aircraft were dropping supplies. Men were getting killed by these supplies, getting parachutes. Most of it was getting lost in the jungles, but they were just getting enough, as long as we could pack on carriers to keep the Australians supplied. The Japanese had carriers, but they had no aircraft. By the time they got to Port Moresby, they were a spent force. Their strength had been sapped. Their supplies were non-existent. They were starving by the time they got to Port Moresby. The Japanese talk about being able to see the lights of Port Moresby, but they got an order from the Imperial headquarters in Japan, stop operations, go back the way you came, head back towards the northern coast. They were concerned about Water Canal, and they might have to be transferred to Water Canal. So um, Japanese, just as they... They wouldn't have been able to take Port Moresby anyway, but they got close to Imata Ridge, the very last ridge of Port Moresby, and then the Japanese got orders. Just as the Australians launched their offensive to retake Imata Ridge, the Japanese also withdrew the day before they got orders to pull out. So then you had this basic Japanese were going very quickly back to the north, and the Australians were advancing very quickly after them. Move over Rome, move over Greece, this month on The Ancients, we're heading to the Americas, north, meso, and south. Join us every Sunday this August as we explore this area of the world's extraordinary distant past with leading experts. From the rise and fall of Teotihuacan to the mysterious Nazca Lines. A journey through the ancient Americas, every Sunday this August on The Ancients from History Hit. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Down. 
but what was it like in Port Moresby as they knew the Japanese could see the lights there? They knew that they were on the edge. Did they think they'd be overrun like a, a Hong Kong or a Singapore? Were there plans for an evacuation? Or was it now there's enough troops that they were ready for them and there was an offensive about to take place? The Australian generals actually wanted to withdraw very quickly because they realised supply logistics was everything. And as someone once, I can't remember who it was, said that amateurs in war think of flanking manoeuvres and tactics, professionals think of logistics. And if anything's true about the Dakota campaign, it's logistics. Whoever has the ability to supply their troops in that type of terrain is going to win. Obviously, you need the numbers of men, but you also need to be able to supply them. The Japanese did not supply them, and they outnumbered the Australians. But the further they got, men were starving and getting sick, they getting malaria, they were falling out. So by the time they got to Port Moresby, the Australians vastly outnumbered the Japanese. Well, tell us a little bit about this fighting as it took place, as the Japanese were pushing forward at that record pace, because... The way you describe it is that this is a a one-track, or maybe, like you said, there's smaller tracks either side, trail, where you can't get vehicles. So troops have to move up maybe two abreast or one, one <laughs> singularly moving through the mountains. Does this become easier for that smaller amount of Australians to defend? And is that the reason why they're able to hold them back and maybe allow time for those reinforcements to come? Is it the terrain that helps the Australians in their defence of Port Moresby? It is, but as Australians found, the terrain also worked against them because the Australians could not defend the Japanese on the fall back. When the Australians were in advance, that same terrain worked against the Australians because it helped the Japanese. The place called Arara Creek. The Australians could not defend that because the mountains were in the, the high area was in the north, and um, the, so the Japanese were coming from the north. The Australians to the south of that were in the lowlands. When it was split over and the Australians were advancing towards the Japanese, the Japanese realised that was the very spot to make a defence because the Australians were approaching from the lowlands to the south. Now the Japanese in the north were in the highlands. When the Australians were back in the advance, they hit Aurora Creek. They spent over a week there and they lost a lot of men. The terrain was everything. The thing about Kokoda and jungle warfare, it devolves down to brigadiers that almost become administrators, making sure the troops are getting the supplies and getting the men. To be fair, David, it sounds like absolute hell for the Australian troops. And is this one of the reasons why that the Kokoda Trail has come to be known as Australia's Thermopylae? Yeah, well, specifically the Belarusia Arva that I talked about where the 300 250, 300 Michelin based the Japanese and then they were reinforced that very afternoon. That is actually called Australia's Philippine. Did you have two or three places where the Australians make a stand? A lot of the time they're slowly withdrawing. But you do get some terrain like Tarava. It's high up one of the highest parts of the mountains, but it's a broad open air. It's a bit of an open area where the Australians think they can actually make a stand. So they're trying to buy time. So more Australians will be brought up to the Dakota track from Queensland. So they're buying time. And at a few places like Usarava, Mission Ridge and Urabira um, Ridge. They're the three places on the withdrawal back towards Port Morsi. The Australians stop to make a stand, try and halt the Japanese as much as they can. But they also know the Japanese are masters at flanking manoeuvres. And at each of those points, running along a ridge, it's like a north-south ridge, and there are ridges parallel either side of the gully, and the Japanese are coming down those ridges on the flanks. They still try it on the main powder track, those three places, the only places you can really try and do a defence. But same places um, on, on the advance, the Australians quickly go through Rivera Ridge. They go from which the Japanese don't stop. Hero Creek, which is just south of Usarava, Japanese make their big stand on their retreat to try and stop the Australians from getting back to Kokoda. There's a battle there that goes for about eight days, one of the biggest battles. And then after that battle, the Japanese fall back to their big tents. 
it certainly sounds like there were there were scenes that you could have taken straight out of Sparta and the 300 standing there defending against a formidable endless army charging at them. But the Japanese themselves said that the Australians fought incredibly well. I read a quote from the Chief of Staff of uh, Japan's South Sea Army who said that in the Kokoda battle, the Australian soldiers' qualities and ability and individual initiative enabled them to show tremendous ability as fighting men in the jungle. They were superb. And, and this is the reputation that has come down through history from that battle. But also, perhaps you can tell us a little about the indigenous forces, the local forces that were involved here. They must have been absolutely vital to just making sure these Australians could survive in the jungle. Oh, yeah. Everyone knows about the Papuans as carriers getting the wounded out, bringing out supplies. But originally, the first force to confront the Japanese in the lowlands about a week after the invasion was the 1st Papuan Infantry Battalion, um, which was led by Australian officers and, NC- and had Papuan NCOs and Papuan infantrymen. They were the first people to confront the Japanese. And a lot of people don't think that the Papuan infantry were actually fighting the Japanese. Most people think like the Papuans were carriers. And that was incredibly important. Without the carriers, we would have lost. But they were also fighting troops. They were the first one confront the Japanese invasion at, at Wairopi and stop them for a few hours. Um, and they also fought with the Papuan infantrymen, fought with the Australians at the, both battles of Kokoda and at Oivi, still on the lowlands. And it was only at Usarava that there were so few of them that they ended up becoming medics, stretcher bearers. There were so few of them left. But the Papuan carriers combined with the aircraft, about the DC-3 transport aircraft and the Papuan carriers, like you had logistics was everything, and they were crucial for logistics. And supplies, ammunition, mass would not have been able to be brought forward and we would have lost the battle. The Japanese would have steamrolled. And the other is the Japanese sat, our strength was sat by the time they got to Port Moresby was because the Australians did a fighting withdrawal, which lasted about a month and a half. And the only reasons the Australians were able to keep fighting for that month and a half was that they had logistics on their side and logistics were those aircraft and them and dropping supplies to the Australians and the Mackin carriers, a few thousand of them, Going up the track, carrying huge amounts of, of material from, from mail, which is crucial, and ammunition. Again, amateurs talk about flanking maneuvers, two professionals talk about logistics, and Kakoda was all about logistics. Absolutely. I, I think that's certainly the case and such an important point to make. So, David, bring us through towards the end of Kokoda. How does it start to come to an end? And overall, how many killed and wounded on each side are we talking about? By then, the Kokoda campaign finishes at the Kamutsi River. The Australians three take Kokoda without a fight. The Japanese at Aura Creek, which happens between the 20th and the 28th of October. Um, the Australians break through in a broad sweeping manoeuvre. A whole battalion cuts off the Japanese. The Japanese bolt back to their big tents, where they've been setting up major defensive works for four months. And um, as far as some of the best defensive works were built in World War II by Japanese, Gonabun and Sinanander are ranked pretty strong defensive positions. They were building those up. I know some of the Pacific Islands had concrete bunkers and everything else, but considering what they did at San Fernando and Una and Gona, the Japanese in November and December and January put up one hell of a fight to stop the Australians and the, and the Americans pushing them out of Papua New Guinea. And um, so basically Australians retake Kokoda without a fight. Two big fights happen a week later, a place called Oivi and Gurari, which are about 10 metres west, which is basically the last battles. They're on the lowlands, not the mountains. They're amongst the biggest battles that were fought in the Kokoda campaign. And basically the North South Seas Force, which consists of the Japanese 41st Regiment and the 144th Regiment, they decimated. They, they ceased to lose. Um, a few hundred of those men make it back to the Japanese beachheads. 
a lot of those soldiers, there were 13,000. A lot of those men were taken off New Guinea and sent to Guadalcanal, which was raging at the same time. Uh, by the time the Australians and Americans launch operations against the Japanese beachheads, within a week at Dakota, um, the battles for Japanese beachheads last for almost three months, almost as long as the Dakota campaign, and more Australians are killed in those battles than for Dakota. And those battles for uh, the Japanese beachheads are the first time Australian infantry and American troops fight substantial battles in joint operations. All up, you're talking about 8,000 Australian casualties, I think 3,000 American casualties, and you're talking close to um, the Japanese, probably losing about 8,000 dead. That's incredible. Foreign invasion force of 13,000. And uh, like I said, a lot of those ended up at Watercanal. Well, David, I think you've very clearly shown us just how desperate and vicious Kokoda was as a campaign that saw enormous suffering on both sides. Was it, in terms of its legacy, was it crucial for the Allies to win this? Was it a turning point in the war in the Pacific? With Guadalcanal, both of those things together, yes. Guadalcanal on its own and Kokoda on its own was significant, but you put those both together uh, and they weren't thought as a campaign, but in the end, when you look at it, it ended up being a campaign. They'll fought separately, but they'll both fought at the same time. They'll both stopping the Japanese from establishing that southern zone, and they both were successful. But by the time you finished, um, the, the Japanese are defeated at um, the Japanese beachheads in January 1943. The Americans pushed the Japanese out of Guadalcanal. That whole southern defence zone is gone. That buffer is gone. So either Kokoda or Guadalcanal on its own, as the defeat was a major disaster for the Japanese in terms of that southern defensive line, you put them both together, that whole line's now gone. And so now you've basically got the underbelly of Asia ready for the Philippines to be invaded. The Japanese were now completely exposed. Their whole southern defence zone that was defend mainland Asia, it's gone. And uh, now you've got the Australians, the Americans, keyed up. The Australians were fighting in South Pacific the rest of the war. They were going to be involved in the landings in Japan, which never happened because of the bombs. But, um, yeah, Watercanal and Kokoda together were instrumental in undermining the Japanese defence of Southeast Asia. Well, David, thank you so much for your time, for giving us this detail and also putting the Kokoda Trail into its broader context and for explaining to us this defining moment of the Second World War. Please tell us, where can we hear more? Where can we read more of your work and about the Kokoda Trail? I've just finished four volumes on the Kokoda Trail. There's four books. One's called The Battle for Kokoda Plateau and uh, the next one's The Battle for Sarava. Then it's called Saving Port Moresby and then final book is Retaking Dakota. Two of them are out now. The other two are coming out in the next few months. And then I'm just now starting the Battle for the Beachheads. Three books in the Beachhead, Gona, Buna and San Ananda. And I've just finished Gona, so starting to write San Ananda now. So all in all, there'll be seven books. Oh, wow. A truly comprehensive history. Well, I can't wait to get hold of those. And you are, of course, always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Thank you, David. Thank you very much, James. Thanks for listening, but before you go, I've got a very exciting special offer for Warfare listeners. Over on History Hit TV, we're building the world's best history channel on demand, and we want to share it with you. When you sign up for a monthly subscription using the code WARFARE, you'll get two things. You'll get two weeks free, followed by your first three months with 50% off. We release two exclusive new documentaries every week, including my new series, Traces of War. And you'll get access to every episode of our ever-growing podcast network, ad-free. So you can listen to Warfare without the interruptions, but also to all our shows like Matt and Cat on Gone Medieval or Tristan on The Ancients. To sign up, just follow the link in the show notes. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. And before you go, remember as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully uninterrupted, ad free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War, and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.